The spirit of emigration to British America has not been stronger or more extensively prevalent in this part of the country for several years back than at present. Messrs. Lyle's large and commodious ship, the Newry, is just on the eve of leaving port with a full complement of passengers for Quebec. The Newry Telegraph, quoted by Richmond Enquirer, June 8th. 1830. Though the passengers could expect a long voyage to the coast of Canada, their voyage instead lasted approximately two and a half days. Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the story, The Newry Misses the Light? Here we are. Enjoy! The Newry departed from Warren Point, County Down, Ireland, on the 14th of April, 1830, with an estimated 400 immigrants on board. The 500-ton Newry was not a particularly old vessel having been built in 1825 in Quebec for owners based out of Newry, who gave her the name of their home. Perhaps because of this connection to the area, and the relatively young age of the ship, she had attracted respectable passengers, mainly farmers with their families and servants. It was repeatedly noted by the papers later since there was a large difference in class between the people that the general public imagined immigrating from Ireland to North America and those who were on board the Newry as she left the harbor. It was particularly noted that a large group of Freemasons had accompanied some of the passengers to tearfully say farewell to their members who were leaving, accompanied by music, and in full regalia. Many of the people who were traveling were going to reunite with other family members who had already gone ahead to Quebec to set up home and life for them across the sea, and they were looking forward to being reunited. The first night of the voyage was uneventful, but midday on the 15th, the wind turned against them and by noon on Friday, the 16th, the winds were so contrary that the ship was forced to change her course and head to the southeast. As it turned to evening, the weather turned to a thick, hazy fog, accompanied by strong winds, leaving Captain Crosby with no idea that he was heading dangerously toward Carnarvon Bay. Captain Crosby missed the light of the Bardsey Lighthouse in the fog, which would have given him a warning of the approaching danger. And so, the first sign of trouble was when he saw the breakers ahead of the Newry. Once Captain Crosby spotted the breakers, he quickly ordered that the ship be turned around, but it was too late. The Newry struck on the rocks near Porth Orion. When the Newry crashed, it was already the middle of the night, and it had been lights out below the decks for a while. None of the passengers were on deck. They were either asleep or too seasick to know what was going on, since it was still the start of the voyage, 
and it often took some time for the passengers to gain their sea legs. Captain Crosby, envisioning an immediate future with a deck full of panicking passengers, ordered the crew to fasten the hatches so that the passengers could not rush the deck while they tried to figure out how to work the ship off of the rocks. This was undoubtedly horrifying for those below who were left in the dark with no understanding of what had happened. But it was later credited by some with having averted a turmoil that would have prevented the crew from doing their best work. It took 20 minutes of trying to get the ship off of the rocks before Captain Crosby came to the conclusion that it was a lost cause. The Newry was not going to be saved. With this, the captain ordered that the hatches be removed again and announced that everyone should have an equal chance to save their lives. As soon as this announcement was made, the passengers rushed to the deck, most of them with very little clothing on, since they had all rushed from their beds. No one made much of an attempt to grab anything else. Everyone threw themselves into trying to escape from the ship. The first attempt was to launch a boat from the quarterdeck, but almost as soon as it was launched, eleven men jumped into it and it capsized. The people on board the ship did not have a chance to rescue them, and they were lost to the angry waves. Captain Crosby decided that a better alternative to launching boats was to connect the deck of the ship to the rocks she was wrecked on, and he ordered that the mast be cut down, directing it to fall onto the shore. The carpenter had the honor of being the first man across the makeshift bridge, carrying a rope with him that added a connection between the ship and the shore. With the assistance of the rope, they were able to get around 200 of the passengers to shore. Captain Crosby was aided in this by the carpenter, the first mate, and the second mate, who was Captain Crosby's son. The role that the crew played was later debated. Many of the newspaper accounts said that the crew had taken Captain Crosby at his word to save their own lives, and that they had rushed over the mast to the shore with complete disregard for the passengers. The Lloyd's agent, who was later dispatched to the scene of the wreck, however, said that he could find no evidence of this, and that the crew had done everything that they could to save lives as well. It was admitted that a few of the younger members of the crew had rushed to escape and abandoned their post, but, for the most part, the crew had remained and worked themselves into a state of exhaustion to help the passengers to safety, even those who had been badly injured by the wreck and subsequent work. The work was made even worse when it began to snow and sleet. Those who were engaged in rescue work were undoubtedly thankful when around four in the morning, a man who lived in the area found the wreck and brought several other men to help. The man, David Griffith, worked as a local sailor, and he almost immediately scrambled onto the Newry and began to help those passengers who were still trapped on the ship. He and the men that he had brought with him were estimated to save between 40 and 50 passengers. David Griffith worked on the ship, passing people to the three men he had brought with him who remained on shore. By 10 o'clock in the morning, on Saturday the 17th, 
there was no longer anyone who could be saved on the Nuri. The entire crew had managed to escape from the wreck, but the passengers had not been so lucky. It was never entirely determined how many had been lost, though it was estimated to be between 40 and 80. That was the final estimate, come to by the same Lloyd's agent who had also come to the defense of the crew's conduct. The initial newspaper reports were far more dramatic, and put the number around 200. Many of the people who were lost were due to the Newbury beginning to break up, and the heavy waves. One girl said that she had been carrying her niece when a piece of timber had struck her, weakening her so much that the waves had been able to sweep the child away from her. Another woman had lost her husband and her 19-year-old son, leaving her worried about who would support her in her old age. She had lost her whole family overnight. A 12-year-old girl named Mary Ann Watt had lost both of her parents. She did not know what had happened to her father, but she had seen her mother struck by a piece of timber and fall. Though a sailor had rushed to help her mother, there was nothing that could help her. Marianne Watt had only survived because the carpenter had dragged her to the shore with a rope, but she was badly bruised and didn't know anyone. One man who had been helping his elderly mother across the mast watched her fall due to a large wave and grabbed a hold of a piece of rope without his hands available due to clinging the mast. He had instead grabbed the rope in his mouth and dragged her to shore. She was too badly wounded and passed soon after, but he took some comfort in having made the effort to save her. There were stories of incredible escapes as well. A man named Clark was traveling with his wife and two-year-old daughter. He had told his wife to do her best to reach the shore while he tried to carry their child to safety. He had assisted his wife up onto the mast and then, realizing that he could not stand to watch her attempt the passage alone, he passed his daughter to a mate while he assisted his wife. The mate had a berth on deck and put his daughter in his own bed while Clark took his wife to shore and then was forced to watch from the shore until daylight when a sailor tied a rope to the little girl's waist and then threw the other end to Clark, who was able to pull her to the shore safely. He had lost all of the money that he had earned by selling his farm, but he said that he was fine with trading his property for the lives of his family. Another man, who was named Brown, was traveling with his wife and six children. He had not gone to bed the night of the wreck. His children were too seasick for him to rest. He had actually asked Captain Crosby that night if they were going to take up a reef for the night, but Captain Crosby had said that the Newry was in too good a sailing condition for such concerns. When the ship had wrecked, Brown and the two young men who were from the same community in Ireland as he was, managed to bring Brown's wife and three of their children to shore. There were still three children on the boat, though, and one of the young men volunteered to go back to the ship, when, on finding the children, tied all three of them to his back and carried them to shore himself.
As day broke on that Saturday, though the rescue work was ongoing, the people who found themselves on the rocks began to make their way up to the nearest farmhouses and cottages. The survivors were almost naked after being abruptly woken from their beds, cold and wet. The people who lived closest to the wreck site went so far as to burn some of their furniture to warm up the people they found shivering at their doorsteps. That, in many cases, there was no shared language did not make any difference. Once word got out in the community what had happened, everyone wanted to help. Once everyone was on shore and they had warmed up by the fire, the shipwrecked people began to walk to Carnarvon, making their way as they could in small groups. As they walked, people from the local community rushed to offer them aid, whether it was in the form of food, clothing, or money. Since most of the passengers had been bringing all of their belongings with them to start their new life in Quebec, and they had sold everything that they were not able to bring, they needed all of the aid that they could receive. Brown was part of one of the last groups to arrive in Carnarvon, along with the two young men who had helped him rescue his family. When asked what had taken them so long, one of the young men said that the children had traveled very slowly, and he had been unwilling to leave them, so he had stayed with the family to help with the children, as had the other young man. In Carnarvon, the deputy mayor of the town and the bailiffs immediately called a public meeting, and a subscription was taken up for the survivors. By means of the subscription, a good meal was provided for all of the people who had been shipwrecked. Everyone was clothed, and every person received four shillings. Medical attention was also provided by the town, and wagons were brought to transport the sick and wounded. The people who had made the walk to Carnarvon from the wreck of the Newbury would later say that through the entire 35-mile walk, they had not met with a single closed door, and every person that they had met, even the most poor, offered them something to help them. One of the men who was traveling with his wife and three children, who was part of the last group to arrive in Carnarvon, said that the women who saw his children looking cold and wet on the road took off items of their own clothing to wrap his children in. The Newry broke up almost entirely in the face of the poor weather on Sunday. James Harris, the local Lloyd agent, who rushed to the scene, could do very little other than authorize the auction of what remained of the ship on Monday. Even this was not without sadness, since, when the timbers of the Newry washed ashore, there were also fourteen people who washed ashore, and their burial was overseen by the local community, along with the burial of those who had not survived their injuries once they had reached the shore. It was estimated that at least four people had succumbed to the cold rather than the rocks once they had reached the shore. Most of the passengers who had been on the Newry, now destitute, returned to Ireland to try to piece their lives together. Mary Ann Watt remained in the area, however. Since she had no family left, a local family took her in, and her story gained a good deal of sympathy and attention. A fund was founded for her support, 
which gained such contributors as the Duchess of Kent, who gave her twenty pounds a year for her support through the management of the mayor of Carnarvon and four other trustees. David Griffith, the local sailor who had boarded the Newry to save as many passengers as he could, was awarded a silver medal by the National Institute for the Preservation of Life from Shipwreck, as well as four pounds. They awarded two pounds to the three local men who had assisted him from the shore. No blame was assigned to the wreck of the Newry. It was judged to have been the fault of the weather more than anything that anyone could have predicted. Rather than assign blame, the passengers were quick to express their gratitude to Captain Crosby, his crew, and everyone that they had met for doing far more than could have been expected in such a situation. For more information, see the Monmouth Sher Merlin from the 1st of May, 1830, or see other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.